The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. It is indeed The Enviro Show with me, Nancy Richards, also with Derek Fordyce here in Cape Town. And let me tell you what we got lined up on the Enviro Show tonight. Well, first up, we're going to be getting a something of a word on the impact of the ships that seem to be sinking off our coast. We're going to be chatting to Captain Nigel Campbell. And uh, he's with the uh, South African Maritime Safety Authority. We'll also be talking to a spokesperson from Sankob. They're the South African Foundation for the Conservation of Coastal Birds to find out exactly what the impact is on the, uh, on the creatures uh, surrounding the, uh, the coast. And then the, the Philippi Horticultural Area in Cape Town has very much been under the spotlight at present as developers seem to be setting their sights on. So we'll getting at least one side of the story from, amongst other things, Secretary of the Scarp Carl Civic and Environmental Association. In our green goodie slot at the end of the show, we'll hear a little bit about the Arbor Challenge that's been put together by Food and Trees for Africa. And we'll be having, amongst all of that, another in our Cosmo Girl series for August. And she's going to be talking tonight all about the Milky Way. And that is uh, Michelle Knights. So that's what we got lined up. And if you'd like to give us a call, say your thing, do your bit, you're welcome. And the number is 0892 10 2010. 0892 at Specsavers, we continue to bring you quality eye care at affordable prices. Our incredible multifocal lens features the latest in digital surfacing technology, resulting in sharper vision and a smoother transition between long and short distance viewing. See your world through new eyes. Change to incredible multifocal. Now only 547 Rand per lens. Specsavers. For affordable eye care and a whole lot more. T's and C's apply. News from the TV Licence Office. With our new SMS balance inquiry function, you can now get your TV licence balance quickly and easily on your cell phone. SMS your ID number or TV licence number to 44210 and voila, quick and easy, TV licences make a difference. The Enviro Show on SAFM. Well, first up on the show tonight, you've probably seen the pictures either in the press or on television of the stricken vessels off the coast of Buffalo's Bay and also Richard's Bay, the Kiani Satu and the MV Smart, respectively. Well, the Kiani Satu carrying, amongst other things, 300 tonnes of oil and the MV Smart carrying also, amongst other things, something like 1,769 tonnes of fuel oil. Well, we know that the Keanu, Keanu Sati, Satu, difficult to say that, has now finally sunk and the smart is broken in two and it's going to cost many thousands, if not millions of rand, to sort it all out. Well, we thought we'd try and find out a little bit about what the reality of the situation is because it's been suggested that we could be seeing many more such incidents of wrecked ships leaking cargo into the ocean. Well, earlier I spoke to one very exhausted Captain Nigel Campbell of the South African Maritime Safety Authority to find out what the latest actually is. Piani Satu sank on Wednesday morning, 0400, 110 nautical miles south of the coast in 1,000 metres of water. We had plugged the fuel tanks to ensure that the fuel didn't leak out when the ship sank. Uh, it's been confirmed by the Kusfach 9, the Department of Environment Aircraft, that there was a light sheen in the area that the ship sank, that they did not see any oil bubbling to the surface, which is a good indication um, that what we have done has held. 
That's the Keanu Satu and the MV Smart? Um, she is still not leaking any oil. Uh, the barge arrived from Durban last night. It is being prepared uh, to accept fuel from the ship. Uh, but unfortunately today the weather conditions were so bad that we couldn't get people on board the Smart uh, to start rigging those hoses. We hope to start to, uh, tomorrow on Friday uh, where the conditions still aren't very good. So probably more realistically we will start pumping on Saturday morning. Just going back to the Keanu Satu then, it's it's sunk, there's a light sheen uh, on the surface but no oil bubbling to the surface. Is that, that's the status quo, is it likely to change? Could it be that something that the oil will bubble to the surface at a later stage? Um, I think it's inevitable. Uh, we recently, uh, as May last year, uh, had a, an incident where we had oil on the beach of Mossel Bay the vessel that sank 20 years ago um, in shallow water. We were able to spread, dive, hot tap into the tanks and remove all the oil. Uh, with the Kiani Satu, uh, that won't be possible uh, because she's in a 1,000 metres of water. Um, but the area uh, that we chose, uh, A, at 1,000 metres, bottom temperature is about 6 degrees, uh, which will solidify the heavy oil. Um, B, if one follows the uh, the current, the Mozambique current that comes right down the east coast and south coast of South Africa um, at the at the continental shelf uh, where we sank her, the, the, any oil that comes up will go west uh, and then head in a southerly direction. So slim chance that it will come ashore um, if it does um, and be it 10 years, 20, 30 years' time. There is no limitation in time uh, on the liability of the insurers to clean everything up. Mm. So 30 years' time, if it pops on the beach, and I suppose I'll be here, that um, they still have uh, an, a liability to clean that oil up. And as, the, as I said earlier, the, the, the vessel that sank 20 years ago, and we had to take all the oil out, uh, my memory serves me right, it's a 25 million rand bill that was met by insurers with no cost to South Africa. No matter whose liability it is to clean it up, the fact of the matter is that, you know, this oil could be floating around the oceans for 30 years, possibly even longer. You know, given that, there could, that there, this could be something that happens again and again, it's been suggested that we will have more, not fewer, uh, wrecked ships we are potentially damaging our oceans massively. Uh, I would debate that we will have more wrecked ships. Um, I don't know where that theory comes from. Uh, but while I would agree, yes, there is pollution of the ocean. Um, but Mother Nature is good to us. Uh, some of the weather we've had recently um, breaks up that oil very quickly. Um, and if my memory serves me right, the Torrey Canyon sank off uh, Land's End in the late 60s. Ten years later, that oil broke down. Um, it's a natural product, uh, and it was some of the richest fishing, fishing grounds in the United Kingdom. Hmm. Well, that's uh, good news to hear. The theory that there are going to be more like this, I mean, I can't prove that either, but it has been suggested uh, by an environmentalist. Uh, you know, I suppose the question that one really 
wants to ask is, why is it happening in the first place? Is it because these ships are not sufficiently seaworthy? Is it because they've run aground? What is it that's causing this, in these two cases, what caused them? Um, in, in the Kiani Satu, it would appear, and I say appear because um, the casualty investigation is still ongoing. There's a lot of technical data to now understand, even though the interviews with the, the personnel on board, uh, that was an engine failure. Um, the, the smart is too early to comment on, on what happened, uh, but we always do a casualty investigation in, in all these cases uh, to understand why it happened, to learn lessons from accidents and prevent them happening in the future. Our findings will go to the International Maritime Organization in London. Uh, there will be public uh, records. Uh, they're debated at that august body. Um, and the Safety of Life at Sea Convention is updated uh, from the lessons we learned. Uh, to ensure that these things are reduced. I won't say they will never happen again. Mm. Yes, they certainly, uh, certainly one would like to think that they won't happen again, but there will always be perhaps, um, the, the, there may not always be the vigilance that there needs to be in terms of ships going out, but clearly there are going to, there's going to be more shipping. There's going to be more cargo vessels carrying oil or coal or fuel in some way or another, simply because... That's how things are moving. So we're going to have more and more. The law of averages, uh, you know, given the, the number of ships that there are out there carrying this sort of cargo, are these really quite a f only a few wrecks that we're seeing? Um, well, interestingly enough, um, uh, at one of our meetings uh, re regarding the Keanu Satu, uh, Smitamandla Marine, who have the government contract to have a salvage tug on the coast, uh, for such emergencies, pointed out that this was the first work that the salvage of the tug had undertaken in the last nine months. The fact that we had two within a matter of days is very unusual. The consequences, you know, it's interesting that you cite the, the case of the Torrey Canyon, which was a long time ago, actually resulted in quite rich fishing territory. That that might be the case, it might not be the case. Certainly we know that there are many seabirds that have been damaged and one would imagine that there are an awful lot of um, creatures below the waves that, that are going to suffer as well because it's not just the oil, it's the whole decomposition of these ships which must be pumping out some sort of pollution into the waters. Uh, yes, but I don't, I'm not an environmentalist so um, if it would be difficult for me to, to comment on... Um, what happens on the seabed when ships finally start, you know, breaking up into mm. pieces. Nonetheless, the, the status at the moment is you say that work is going to start tomorrow, weather permitting, certainly on the MV Smart. Do you feel hopeful that disaster will be averted in the case of these two ships? Um, I would think so. If you're a born optimist, you always uh, look to the bright side. Um, if I look at the actions that uh, the various municipal departments in Nisner took to, to boom off the Nisner Lagoon, boom off the tributaries in the lagoon, closing of the Kokama River mouth, uh, closing of the Swartflay estuary, preparations uh, in case the oil went west, which it never did, to even close off the Tow, tow River at Wilderness, uh, exactly the same response. Uh, has taken place in Richards Bay. St. Lucia Estuary is ready to be boomed. 
uh, and closed if there any if there is an oil spill. Uh, the mango swamps in Richards Bay exactly the same. Well, there you go. That was uh, Captain Nigel Campbell of the South African Maritime Safety Authority. And, uh, well, I guess it remains to be seen what the outcome of those uh, sinking cargo ships actually is. But if you'd like to know a little bit more about the uh, Maritime Safety Authority, it's samsa.org.za, samsa.org.za. Well, some of the stakeholders involved in the consequences of the sinking cargo ships certainly are coastal birds, the gulls, the penguins, cormorants and so on. And big stakeholders from that point of view would be SANCOB, the South African Foundation for the Conservation of Coastal Birds, who would have their work cut out for them in uh, situations like this. Well, we have on the line Conservation Director Vanessa Strauss to give us an idea of just the size of the situation in terms of coastal birds. Hi, Vanessa. Good evening. Hi. Were you able to hear what uh, Captain Campbell was saying there? Yes, I did. Thank you. Um, Vanessa, just give us an idea of how many coastal birds have been affected by these two, uh, the, these two ships that are sinking and the cargo that's been pumping out. Well, following the Kiani Satu oil spill, we received uh, close to 70 African penguins from the Garden Route region. Um, and those birds are probably a direct uh, result of, of the oil that came from that, uh, from that vessel. Um, but a couple of days after that, we also worked with the Addo Elephant National Park and we removed uh, 172 Cape Gannets from Bird Island. Um, and we are assuming at this point that those birds were also oiled as a result of the Kiani Sartus Bowl. So at the moment, we are looking at about 240 birds um, that have been uh, captured uh, because they were oiled uh, following that incident. You say probably... Uh, which sort of Im- indicates that you're not absolutely sure. I mean, is there a certain amount of oil that um, birds, coastal birds are subjected to anyway? Well, the the penguins washed up very close to the wreck. So they, you know, once the penguins get oiled, um, because they are not slighted, they're in the water, they wash up fairly close to where they were oiled. The Cape Gannets are quite interesting because they they, they will captured on the breeding colony approximately 300 kilometers away from the incident site. But we do know that it's just before the breeding season, and those birds do actually forage in the garden root area. It's very interesting that those birds were, were also captured oiled, and um, we have taken oil samples, and, and the ship owner has taken responsibility for having those samples analyzed to actually confirm that it's from the same oil. Um, Yes, and we in in this country we do have a problem with with chronic oil pollution on an annual basis. Sankob admits between three hundred and five hundred seabirds every year, even when there's not a major incident like like we've had the last couple of days. And so, chronic pollution is a is a major uh, concern for us for our seabirds along our coastline. Hmm. So that chronic pollution that you refer to is it sort of residual oil, or are there other pollutants that that you can find on the birds? It definitely is a combination of both. We have done a fair amount of research on analyzing the oil that we get on these birds on an annual basis. And we have identified that there are unique sources of oil along the coastline, especially in the in the Hansby area, which is in the Western Cape, close to Amanus. Um, and we know that there are at least um, four uh, sources of oil where the birds are on an annual basis getting oiled. Um, and those are probably... Sunken ships that are leaking oil, especially in the winter months when the seas are rougher. But then also, um, we've identified in in, over a period of four years, 
21 unique sources of oil also, which are probably passing vessels, dumping oil, or they could be accidental discharges as well. So it's a combination of of, um, of wrecks leaking oil as well as, as discharges in the ocean. Gosh, I'd never thought in terms of Samco having to do sort of uh, oil samples and oil testing. So you could, you know, it's not just a matter of cleaning up the birds and getting them back on track. It's also a matter of finding out where this is. And you say that some people have taken responsibility for the sources of oil. Does that mean that they are then? Does that mean that they then pay to to get the birds cleaned? Well, for the chronic oil pollution that we deal with every single year, it's, you know, we do not have the resources to analyze that oil every single year. So mm. basically, um, the public pays, you know, through supporting Sankob. But for the Kiani site oil spills, the, the ship owner has taken responsibility and is covering all the costs for these 240 birds that we have to date um, in our care. So... You know, in this case, we were lucky where there's been a, um, well, <laughs> if you want to call it lucky, but, yeah. the, the, you know, the, the ship owner is taking responsibility for that. So that is a good thing. But the, the work we do on an annual basis, what, what we call no-spill no times, that basically comes out of the, the public's pocket. What about uh, around in Richards Bay where the smart has gone down? What, what sort of quantity of birds are we looking at there? Well... As you know, no oil has escaped from the vessel yet, so so that is a good thing, and, and we're keeping fingers crossed, and, and, you know, we are confident that the authorities have the situation in hand and it, that yeah, they will be able like to it. safely remove that. Um, the Sankop team has just tonight arrived in Richards Bay, and, and we are, as a precautionary measure, talking to uh, local authorities and looking at, at the, you know, at potential plan for should wildlife become affected and what we can do in this region to to rescue and rehabilitate them. I think in this region we can really look at at, at shorebirds and waterbirds and, and all these beautiful estuaries that are along this coastline that could potentially be impacted, such as pelicans, flamingos, um, some ducks, you know, all these mm-hmm. gorgeous uh, water birds that live in these estuaries. So you're standing by to wait and see what happens. But, uh, you know, it was interesting to hear Captain Campbell saying that, you know, the oil can emerge 30 years later. Mm-hmm. It can drift off down the coast and, you know, 30 years later when you and I might not be here, or we might, you know, it, it's it's a concern, isn't it? Who take? I mean, how long does Sankob stand there waiting to see what will happen? I mean, eventually you're going to have to go back home again. Absolutely. You know, there, there are two aspects of this. There's the, the immediate sort of short-time emergency situation. And as a precautionary measure, we have, we have sent a team to Richards Bay to to look at where we can set something up. You know, we rather want to be ready and have nothing happen than be on the back foot if something happens. And then it's a good thing to have an organization like Sankob. Uh, Sankob's been around for 50 years, and over 50 years we've rehabilitated more than 95,000 seabirds, and most of these birds have been um, oiled have been oiled birds. So um, having NGOs, um, around that maintain the skills and the capacity to respond to these incidents are absolutely crucial. So, not, And, you know, we use these incidences to to, to actually to, to get plans in place and to, to be prepared. So even though there's no wildlife yet, we are participating in the in the process and making sure that, um, that, that we are looking at it from a precautionary measure yeah. rather than, than just responding in an emergency phase. Yeah, being proactive. 
50 years, 95,000 birds, gee whiz. Presumably you've got some sort of records. They might not have been digital 50 years ago, but are the numbers increasingly increasing dramatically in recent years? Well, I would say that, um, you know, in Sankop's earlier years, I would say between the the 1980s and 2000s, there there were more incidences where we responded to, to, to major spills. And, of course, the one that most people would know about is the MV Treasure that sank between Robben Island and, and Dutton Island, where 20,000 African penguins were oiled. And that actually ended up being the, the world's largest animal rescue operation to date. Um, but one of the major concerns for us um, is, the, is the chronic oil pollution. Usually in oil schools, like we see now in the Piani Satu and you know, the birds get oiled and there's so, so many people and manpower on the ground that you get the birds in quickly and you probably get most of the birds that are oiled in. But they're in chronic incidences. There are much less vigilance and um, resources to actually to get those birds. So usually in the chronic in the chronic incidences, your, your hit rate, if you want, or the birds that you get in are probably fewer. Mm. Um, it's very hard to say that we are actually getting all the birds that are affected. Um, you know, often people look at the number of birds in rehabilitation and they make the conclusion that those were the animals that were affected by the spill. But um, many of the birds do not make it back to shore. When, when we get the birds, they're usually quite exhausted, dehydrated, and um, oil birds end up dying of hypothermia because they lose their waterproofing. So many of them do not make it to shore. So we've got to look at the big picture and work with the authorities to to make sure that the, the shipping industry do become safer and that we protect our marine environment. Seabirds sure. are declining and the risk of oil spills um, becomes, with the decline in the seabirds, the risk of oil spills are becoming more significant. You're talking about the exhaustion and dehydration and oiled, and just looking at your press release here, there's reference to lightly oiled and heavily oiled. And I'm thinking, Mm. you know, that's what's happening on the surface. But to what extent are the creatures, you know, ingesting the oil? They definitely do ingest the oil. You know, on short term, they they die of the hypothermia, dehydration, starvation. But when the birds um, end up reaching the shore, they try and preen themselves. And even when they, especially the flying birds, they dive into the oil, they ingest the oil. Um, So much research has been done in the seabird community to try and understand the long-term impact of of oil on the the population, claims of seabirds, and, and it's very hard. But we do know that the, the oil causes um, suppression of the bone marrow, and that results in anemia of the birds. Um, and seeing that they are divers, uh, they have to dive to find their food. They do need a, a you know decent red blood cell count to actually survive. And um, there are also some conclusions, you know, some researchers that do believe it has a long-term impact on on how they're able to breed. In South Africa, we are lucky as that most of our seabirds are fairly, fairly resilient, such as penguins and the gannet, and and our and our our expertise are, are fairly advanced in terms of rehabilitating these birds, saving their lives, and getting them back into the wild, and giving them the best possible chance in a in a bad situation to to find their partners again and and have a chance at breeding. <laughs> Just lastly, Vanessa, and briefly, I guess one of your biggest weapons against all of this is people power. You talked about the the 20,000 mm. oil penguins, which was some years back, and I think people came out in droves or flocks or whatever to come and yeah. help. Do you have enough uh, volunteers? 
At the moment, we have our rehabilitation operation set up in Cape St. Francis in the Eastern Cape, and we have a team of about uh, 25 to 30 people working on the birds every day. So currently, we do have enough people, um, depending on, on how our preparation work goes here in the in Brazilian Natal. We, we, may need, we may need help, but we will be in touch with the media, and, and if we need help, then um, we will make sure people are aware of it. This work is also fairly specialised, so um, you know it's it's, know it's what quite you're doing. hard work. Yeah, it's very labour intensive. And what's very interesting about the rehabilitation as well is that it often continues for weeks after the incident is over. And the Kiani site is a very good example. Of the the wreck um, the wreck is gone, if you want to call it that. But the 240 birds that are in our care, they're going to require intensive care for the next three to four weeks. So as an NGO, that is our responsibility to care for those birds, give them what they need, to keep the energy levels of people high and, and you know, get the work done. So yeah. often the wildlife response lasts much longer than the actual um, salvage of the wreck or the, or the shoreline cleanup. Um, and that's a, that's a very real challenge that we as wildlife responders face. Vanessa Strauss, more power to your elbow, and I think certainly cleaning up penguins, from what I remember people saying, is that it's, it's quite hard work as well. So I'm going to give out the details of that, what, give, give out your website if anybody would like to know more, perhaps sign up to help, but bearing in mind that it is, it's not necessarily an easy job. Vanessa Strauss, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Welcome. Thank you. Vanessa is Conservation Director of Sankob. Well, if you would like to know more, the website is Sankob, that's S-A-N-C-O-B dot C-O dot Z-A, Sankob dot C-O dot Z-A. The Enviro Show. The Enviro Show, it is here on SAFM. And don't forget, if you would like to pop us a mail, you're welcome. Or find us on Facebook. And I forgot to put up all the details this evening. But usually we are quite efficient with Facebook. And it's uh, Enviro uh, Show on SAFM, uh, the Facebook page. And otherwise, you can pop me a mail, richardsn at safm.co.za. Well, we've been very uh, nautically minded. Matters of the sea, we're going to leave aside just for the moment because next, issues of land and its use right here in the Cape. Another spotlight recently has been the Philippi Horticultural Area. Well, it's a traditionally food-producing region, but part of which it's been suggested should be sold for housing development. Well, we're just going to get one side of this contentious story because on the line we have Secretary of the Civic Scarp Kroll and Environmental Association. He's also with the Emerging Scarp Kroll Farmers Association and on the Philippi Horticultural Housing Committee. He's Nazir Ahmed Sonday. Hi, Nazir. Uh, good evening, Nancy. Sounds like you wear a lot of hats. You're doing a lot of things in the Philippi horticultural area. So tell us, Nazia, tell us a little bit about the Philippi horticultural er- er- area. I believe it's uh, been traditionally growing food for many years. Just explain to us what and where it is. Well, the, the, um, um, the Philippi horticulture area um, um, ha- uh, has been intensively farmed for uh, since the... Um, uh, since the 1890s, um, the first in, uh, um, vegetable farmers were were, uh, were, were German immigrants, mm. and and, uh, and 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 they were busy farming and providing food for the city of Cape Town. Why particularly that area? Was it is it very good fertile land? Is it Philippi? I'm thinking is there's quite a lot of water around there, high water table. Yes, you know the the, the 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 soils and the and the and the, and the microclimate of the of the region 
and also the the the, uh, the easy accessibility to water makes it a uh, perfect um, an area to to grow the type of uh, vegetables that uh, that our farmers are producing in the area. How big is it? How, how to what extent is it uh, being farmed, and what sort of vegetables are you growing there? Well, um, the the area um, 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 you know fifty years ago was. Uh, was hold the most of Mitchell's Plain and some of Kailicha, which is today um, uh, huge um, um, housing areas. Mm. Um, and and then over the years, because uh, of urbanization and the need for housing, uh, it has shrunk right um, to um, to the present state that it is now. And at the moment, we our our, our total area um, is around uh, just over three thousand hectares. Of the 3,000 hectares, some uh, 1,200 hectares is uh, intensively farmed still yet. So I think the amount of land that it's been suggested be sold for housing development is something like 300 hectares. That's right. Okay. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> I just want to mention a little bit about the type of crops that our farmers are growing at the moment. Mm. Um, look, they are, um, they, uh, uh, our farmers are growing... Um, uh, around about 50 vegetable types, from potatoes to carrots to uh, uh, to cabbages, leeks, onion, and so forth. You mm. know, so um, <clears throat> there's all typically fresh produce, uh, and um, and of the of of the total um, and, and 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 the contribution to the city's um, food is something like in the region of 50 percent. So if you go to any supermarket chain store in the, anywhere in the city, um, for example, um, five out of, out of ten cabbages, for example, will come from our area. Five out of ten bunches of carrots will come up from our area. You know, so our contribution to the city's food security is, is quite significant. And it offers employment to how many people? I mean, how many farmers, you, you're amongst the emerging farmers yourself, how many farmers are actually working there? Well, we have a total of about. We have uh, uh, most of the our product at the moment is is uh, being uh, farmed by uh, obviously the commercial farmers who have been there um, for a long time, um, and so <clears throat> so uh, most of the product is uh, produced by them, and um, and we have um, in total uh, close to about twenty uh, twenty uh, between twenty and thirty. Um, uh, 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 farming families uh, in the area, yes. The concern is that it's it's already shrunk substantially over a period of time. It's going to shrink even more. What's your concern there? Because I suppose, you know, you, one does have to factor in that housing is very necessary in, in uh, areas that are close to the city. So one has to look at it from that point of view as well. Yes, of course, you know, and... Um, this is what we've realized from uh, um, as far back as 2008, when the first application for a huge chunk of our land was earmarked for development, and and, uh, up, and then we, and we it forced us to to really understand exactly what is it that um, that we actually uh, uh, need to do, and what is that um, uh, uh, what is the impact of all this going to have, and on. on are not only us, the farmers, but we also had to look at the bigger picture, you see, for the city. Um, <clears throat> so, um, yes, yeah, so um, the, 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 at the moment, we, we, we're sitting with an with, 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 uh, urbanization issue. Um, 
which is uh, which is you know which means that more and more land will have to be used for for housing, um, and so that reality is there. But on the other hand, there's also the also the the um, the, the other reality is that we have to make sure we have enough food uh, mm-hmm. for a growing city and for and for our city because if we don't have that too, then we have a problem where the cost of food is going to skyrocket. And, and we're going to have a lot of instability in the city uh, 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 as a result of that. It seems like it's a, it's a little bit about getting the balance right. What's the status quo at the moment? What, is, is the land going to be sold? Is it going to be developed, that 300 hectares? Yes. Um, what happened is, and this matter goes back to 2012 when, the, uh, when MSP uh, up, um, said, put an application for, for, for this chunk of land. Um, it, it, it's, the company itself only owns about 100 hectares of this land. Uh, and most of that, um, uh, I think only eight of that uh, of that land uh, pieces, uh, urban, um, is not uh, has has not is not been farmed, and the rest is all been farmed by by, by our farmers. Uh, and so, <clears throat> and so, uh, and 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 so they put an application in in, in 2012, uh, and it came to our our civic desk, you know, the farmers uh, union's desk, and uh, we uh, we 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 opposed it, you know. Um, then what happened was it went to went to Mako in November in 2012, and November and and Mako um, uh, said, look, um, we we have to understand the food system much better. There has been studies that uh, that the city itself has uh, really uh, done in uh, in our area um, uh, around around um, around the impact of farming and and and, and food and and so on. Um, as far back as 2009. You know, you know um, Nazir, I'm just thinking we, we're sort of running out of time a little yeah. bit here. I'm just thinking two things. It, uh, maybe you've got a, a contact or an email or if anybody would like to know a little bit more about it because it's a very sensitive issue and if anybody would like to know more, who can they contact? But the other thing is there's been much debate about it in the press. Uh, there's been a lot of arguments uh, either way. And one of the arguments that's come up is that the water... Uh, is actually quite polluted. The, the water there in the in the area is quite polluted. Is that is that so? In your no, view? That, that, that's, not, that's not entirely entirely correct. The the parts that we have we have earmarked actually uh, told the city about. Look, these are parts of the area where there are, are the salinity problems with water, and we, we we in our plan for the for the area we have pointed this out and said, look, if you guys are going to be using some of the land uh, for housing. Uh, use that land, right? Um, but what the city, what the, what developers are proposing is to use the best possible land okay. uh, with the best possible water uh, to use for development. And we think this is an irresponsible move. In fact, the, 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 the city itself commissioned a further study, and they said, "Look, they will uh, uh, they will look at this matter after they, they commissioned the study in, in November 2012." But suddenly, in, in, in July, on July 16, Maker decided, "Look, they're not gonna, even going to wait for this uh, mm-hmm. for the study." they are going to approve, um, they're going to recommend to council to approve this application. It certainly seems like it's a, it's a, an edgy one. What's the best thing to do if anybody would like to find out a little bit more about the Philippi horticultural area and uh, what can be done? Can they contact you and what? how can they do that? Well, we have a Facebook page. We have a, a website under construction at the moment. Okay, and the we Facebook... have a Facebook page called um, uh, uh, PHA for Food and, uh, food and Farming 
for the Cape Flats, food and farming food for and the Cape Flats. Food and farming for the Cape Flats. That, that's our Facebook page. Okay. Uh, we also have on that page an Avas um, um, petition that we're encouraging people to uh, to sign and share widely. Uh, we also um, uh, that people can also contact me. Okay, on. Uh, I'm the official spokesman. And the number is. Uh, my number is 0727243465. Okay, I'm going to leave case. it. I'm going. I'm going to leave it at that, okay. Nazia. But that's super. Thank you very much. Very best of luck, and may the outcome be the right balance. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Nazia Ahmed Sonde, and he is, as you heard there, with the Philippi Horticultural Area. And if you'd like to find out more, check the Facebook page. It's food. Uh, food and uh, for the Cape Flats. Food. I'll come back to you on that one. But it's food for the Cape Flats. Uh, we're going to get that. And his phone number is 0727243650727243. 0727243 this is something that uh, everybody knows about but doesn't realize they know about it. So sorry, we're having button problems here. Well, next up here on uh, uh, the Enviro Show, having talked a little bit about sea and land, we're going to take next to the skies because it's time for another in our Cosmo Girl series with Michelle Knights, who tonight talks about the galaxy. This is something that uh, everybody knows about but doesn't realise they know about it. Well, certainly everybody in South Africa. Um, and that's when you go outside, you look up at night, on a dark night, maybe not in the middle of Cape Town, and you see the stars and you see this beautiful band across the sky, this kind of faint white shimmering band. And that's called the Milky Way. And that's something pretty much everybody knows, uh, that's the Milky Way. But what is it? And that's maybe something that not everybody knows. And actually that band is made up of billions of stars. So what you're looking at is the collective light from billions of stars, which is amazing. And that's our galaxy. We live in the Milky Way. Now, the Milky Way is a disk galaxy. So it looks a little bit like a CD. So uh, it's very flat in, in the one direction, and it has these beautiful spiral arms. So if you Google galaxy, that's the kind of picture you're going to come mm. up with, these beautiful spiral arms. And so what happens is when you're looking out at the Milky Way, you're actually looking into the disk of the galaxy. So that's why you see that band. And if you look away from that band, you see a few stars, because obviously it's not perfectly flat, but not nearly as many as if you look into the disk. And, and the, the amazing thing about the Milky Way is that it's just one of billions of galaxies out there, uh, which is profound. So as astronomers, we we keep looking up at all these galaxies, all comes in different shapes and sizes. Some look like what we think the Milky Way looks like, some look very different. And we can watch them, well, not watch them, <laughs> watch them in cosmic time, yeah. <laughs> evolving and merging. It's, it's, uh, it's, and they're quite beautiful objects. What clusters them together then? What has brought them all together? Because as you look at the sky, there's, as you say, there's the swathe of the Milky Way, and then there are all sorts of other stars and, and whatever else they may be dotted around. But what has brought them together? They're attracted to one another? Yeah, it's actually amazing. Um, because of gravity, right? We have gravitational attraction. We know every object in the universe is gravitationally attracted to everything else. And it's just a function of mass and distance apart. So um, it's true that these, these stars, and also you have to remember the galaxy is not just stars, it's also full of gas and dust. So all this stuff gets attracted together. But um, the incredible thing is at the center of our galaxy lurks this monster called a supermassive black hole. 
This is an object. Now, a black hole is probably everybody's heard of, but perhaps doesn't know what it is. It's, it's called that because it's an object that's so incredibly dense, not even light can escape it. So it just sucks up anything around it and, and crushes it down to something impossibly small. And the black hole in the center of our galaxy is millions of times more massive than our sun. So this is a monster of a black hole. And the thing is, this thing is spinning. And now what tends to happen, so because it's spinning, all the stuff that, is, that gets attracted to this black hole spins as well. And the thing is that when, when things like that tend spin, they tend to flatten out, which tends to give you this disk-like structure. So that's why we see the Milky Way in a band and not just, you do get galaxies that all just poofed out, they're kind of spherical blobs. You do get a lot of galaxies like that. And that's usually because they've merged or done, you know, collided into one another. So our galaxy, because it's got this massive black hole in the middle, it spins and keeps it into this beautiful disk structure. It's a beautiful disk structure now, but I believe it's on a, something of a collision course. Yes, it is. So our neighboring galaxy, uh, well, the nearest big galaxy to us is called Andromeda. Unfortunately, in the southern hemisphere, we don't have a very good view of it. But if you go a bit further north, you can actually see Andromeda with the naked eye. And it's this big, beautiful galaxy. And yes, we are on a collision course, but it's nothing to worry about. <laughs> it's not gonna happening happen tomorrow. Yeah. No, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's happening over sort of millions and millions of years. And uh, even if it was happening right now, we probably wouldn't notice because there's the stars and galaxies are actually so far apart that the chances of two individual stars actually colliding is very small. But it does mean, unfortunately, we'll probably lose our beautiful disk-like structure in um, in a, a, a few billion years. <laughs> One of the things about the the Milky Way and the galaxy is that it has uh, it has uh, it, it affects us in a sort of in a way that's beyond just something that we look at. I mean, it seems to have a sort of a, a certain effect on on the uh, on the planet Earth, which it has done for centuries, for millions of years, hundreds, thousands of years. So there's quite a lot of legend attached. Yes, that's absolutely true, and. Um, one of, that's one of the things that's so amazing about astronomy is it's, it's something that you find in every single culture around the world. Every culture has stories about the stars, about the Milky Way. And uh, what, what I find interesting is a lot of these cultures have different kind of ideas about it. So the Japanese, for example, saw it as a river. Um, there's a beautiful South African story, a Khoisan story, where uh, a girl had, was married and every night, every day her husband would go off hunting and she would stay at home alone and in the evening she'd make the fire and wait for him to come back and cook their dinner. One night he never came back and she was so worried about him in her anguish she reached her hands into the fire and threw the ashes into the sky which made the Milky Way. And when her husband saw this shining trail, he could follow it home. So she saved her lost husband. And it's a beautiful oh, story. It's a wonderful story. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's incredible how this, this object, this thing, the Milky Way and these stars, have had this effect and is this common thread throughout every person on the planet. Aside from that beautiful legend, is, does it have any sort of uh, real effect on us down here? I mean, do we, you know, when it's as it passes over, I know I walked the Camino some little while ago and it said that it follows the path of the Milky Way, whether or not that's true, I certainly have no idea. But does it have any sort of effect on what's below it? Certainly not, uh, not that there's any evidence that I know of. So it, it, the thing is that 
the universe is an incredibly big place and everything is really far away from everything else. So we're part of the Milky Way, yes, but uh, our nearest star is so far away, it would take four light years to send a signal to it. That's, that's the nearest one. This is a huge object. So with these kind of distances, gravity is really the only, the only force that has any say, you know, that has any effect. And so gravitationally, yes, we are very much locked into the Milky Way. Our star is hurtling along at, I don't know, something like 300 million kilometers an hour around the center of the Milky Way. But in terms of an actual physical effect on humanity, I don't think so. So, When you look at it, um, and it's quite hard to look at it because it, it doesn't sort of stay with you. It doesn't sort of seem to stay in place. It, you know, it seems sort of mobile, <laughs> so it's quite difficult to, to get it. You almost have to look away from it to get it, if you know what I mean. It, is, it, is it moving to that extent? So that, that's actually an interesting thing. That's, that's, um, that's actually got more to do with your eye than to, to do with the Milky Way. So the Milky Way, yes, lot, everything is moving, but not on the kind of scale that we can see with the human eye. So that's something that every, every astronomer and every amateur astronomer knows about, that when you're looking at something really faint, and it's very irritating, but the best way to look at it is to not look at it. So you look away from it and kind of look at it out the corner of your eye. And that's because of how your eye is structured, that the receptors that are better with dealing with low light conditions are actually around the edges of your eye. And then the receptors that are good with color are more in the front. So when you look directly at something faint, it's hard to pick it up. But if you just look off of it, then you can actually pick it up better, which is really irritating when you're looking at some beautiful galaxy and you sort of, you see it and you go, oh, and you look, look at it and then <laughs> it disappears. <laughs> so yes, that's definitely got more to do with your eye than the actual Milky Way itself. And you just love it. Michelle, no, Michelle Knight, she's uh, passionately planetary. And we'll be hearing from her again next week in the last of our Cosmo Girl series. Hope you've enjoyed it. And she's going to be talking then about the Big Bang. And just if I can get the facts right once again about the Philippi horticultural area, if you would like to check it out on Facebook, it is in fact food and farming for the Cape Flats. Food and farming for the Cape Flats. But if you'd like to give Nazir a call, his number is 072 724 Three four six five. Sorry, I think I've got it wrong before. Oh seven two seven two four three four six five. Well, finally on the Enviro show here, September Arbor Month. It's round the corner, and in anticipation, Food and Trees for Africa have thrown down the gauntlet with an Arbor Challenge. Well, in our green goodie this evening, we're going to find out a little bit more about it because earlier I spoke to Janice Park of Food and Trees for Africa to explain. This um, year we are doing things a little bit differently. It is always, of course, all about trees. But uh, we've launched the Trees for Africa Arbor Challenge. And really what we're trying to achieve with that is um, greening that happens in South Africa, but even goes beyond South Africa's borders. We're trying to challenge all schools, communities, companies, governments and individuals to plant and look after as many trees as possible leading up to and during the month of September, which in South Africa is Arbor Month. So that's countrywide, literally, from the top to the bottom. Absolutely. And every and, living soul in it. And, and it's, it's really an exciting um, campaign because what we've done with this Trees for Africa Arbor Challenge is we've developed um, a website that's very um, friendly. It's, it's almost like a green Facebook page. Um, where people can go onto the site 
and register their trees. So you, Nancy, may plant a tree in your backyard, and you can go on and register that tree, Google Map it, um, um, so that we're setting up what we call a registry or an inventory map um, of all the trees that we can, um, we can record from people all over the country planting. Um, it's, we've got great uptake. We've got uh, schools getting engaged, um, a lot of companies, um, some nurseries, nurseries uh, who are not just selling trees but actually donating quite a lot of trees to us. We've got a um, new plant nursery and um, in the Southern Cape who's giving us over a 1,000 trees to distribute to disadvantaged communities at this time. Um, we've got people like um, Nasha Mobile planting 2,000 trees. Um, so there's, you know, there's some people planting one, there's some people planting thousands. But basically, we're trying to just really energize a new excitement and understanding of the value of trees in our lives. Mm, and if it's a challenge, I mean, if Nasha uh, Mobile are, produ- are donating 2,000, I suppose it's a challenge to any other company to top that. Absolutely, but we'll take even one. We have such a demand for trees. You know, we've been running this Trees for All program where we get applications from disadvantaged communities, lots of schools around South Africa who ask us to help them with trees, and we then raise the funds and purchase one meter fruit or indigenous trees to get to them. We have applications on file at this moment for about three million trees, Nancy. So the demand for trees from poor communities um, is, is enormous. Uh, the interest in trees is growing. You know, there's just so many benefits that people are starting to realize they get from trees, from balancing the climate to providing food and other, you know, crucial resources, enhancing really vital biodiversity, contributing to soil management, drainage and runoff. All those things people are starting to understand. And so the demand on us is huge. And we as a nonprofit need to raise the funds or raise the interest from companies and individuals in supporting this demand. So this challenge hopefully will go a long way to doing that. You know, there are trees, trees and trees. And I mean, there's no such thing as a bad tree, I don't suppose, unless, of course, it's sort of desperately alien and doing harm. But there are trees that will do more good, some that are even more beneficial, some that are area, regionally specific. And usually, as far as I know, there's a sort of tree of the year. Are there any particular, is there a tree of the year? And are there any particular trees that you would like? I hope you wouldn't ask me that, Nancy, because I actually (laughs) don't have on the tip of my tongue what the trees of the year are this year. And in fact, you're quite right, there are always um, two trees of the year, one that's more common and one that's more endangered. Um, I'm going to try and get that for you in a second. But we really are wanting people to uh, just plant trees that are appropriate for their area and for their needs. So there are a lot of fruit trees being uh, requested. Right, I'm here. So the trees of the year for 2013 are the blossom tree or kirbwur. Okay, blossom tree. tree this year. The crossberry or uh, Graeria occidentalis. And then, this is a great name, the powder puff tree. Uh, which is Barringtonia racemosa. So there are three trees of the year, the Kirbom being the, the most common and the other two being more endangered. Now, those are not obviously appropriate for everywhere in the country. Uh, hence, you know, the encouragement to plant what you need. If you need a fruit tree, if you need a tree that will give you shade, find out what the most appropriate is for your area and plant that. Is there, have you got advice on that score? 
on your website, your, your unbelievably well-informed website, I mean, you know, geographically, if people look up their province, will you be able to help? Um, we, in fact, that we will be able to do through email. We haven't got the um, technology on the site to that degree yet, but we hope to. Um, once we get all these trees being mapped, uh, we'll be in a better position to do that. But in the meantime, if anybody just wants to email us at info at trees.org.za, we will be able to um, advise them on what trees to plant. What's the downside of trees? I mean, here we are busy, a demand for three million trees, which is huge, but I suppose it's, an, it's nothing, really a drop in the soil, I suppose, or a sort of seed in the, in the soil yes. when you think of the whole country. But to what extent are our trees threatened? I suppose everywhere there's development, trees are going to come out. Some, exactly. In I some mean, cases, we see that up and down our suburbs, the streets of our suburbs every day, you know, and, um, and, and then development is, is often so uncaring and un, unthought through um, whether we're developing new townhouses, business um, office blocks or indeed low cost housing. The way to go seems to be to bulldoze every tree, every blade of grass out and start from scratch which is really thoughtless because trees take so long to grow and give us so much. So the development is, is one issue um, and it's a big issue particularly in urban areas. Um, fortunately, the chopping down of trees for firewood in our rural areas is slowing down a lot. I suppose that's to do with um, you know people being connected to the grid um, at an ever increasing rate. Um, but uh, there, there, we we need more trees than we can imagine. You know, every single one of us should plant a minimum of about ten trees a year, simply to offset our intensive carbon lifestyles to, you know, sink some of the carbon that we are emitting every year. So one has to say, well, you know, did you plant 10 trees this year? Luckily, I can say I certainly did. <laughs> we're planting tens of thousands yeah. of trees a year, but thanks to all of our great supporters. But um, so, yes. so, so the, you know, this, the, there's a, a growing understanding that trees are one of the very few things we can do to uh, plant to balance the climate. Climate change is coming at us at such a rate and is, is so deadly, seems so enormous to so many of us. But the simple thing that every single one of us could do to address climate change is to plant a tree, look after a tree, or donate a tree to somebody who doesn't have one. And if you do a lot of flying, try planting 20 trees a year. Exactly. We, we have a really good little carbon calculator on our website um, where you can go and um, calculate your lifestyle, your flights, your travel, uh, your, your business, your school, um, and it will tell you exactly how many trees you need to plant to, to sink that carbon. You know, we talk about it, we need lots of trees. I mean, they don't just they don't just arrive. Uh, a lot of us are sort of imagine a little sapling suddenly becoming a great big tree. But is it possible? Is it quite or how easy is it for people, regular people, to propagate their own trees? Um, yeah, well, the um, irony is that South African trees are indigenous. South African trees are not always the easiest to grow from seed. So you are better off getting um, a seedling or a sapling from a nursery. Um, there are all sorts of things one needs to do to various of our tree seeds in order to make them grow. But uh, having said that, on the other hand, there are trees that, that do simply pop up. Um, unfortunately, a lot of those uh, that, that people find in their gardens, we get people calling and saying, look, we've got, I've got all these trees popping up, can you come and take them for me? And we find a lot of those are invasive trees, the more opportunistic trees that are not necessarily uh, the most appropriate to plant. 
But there are also indigenous trees that do grow very well from seeds. So one just again has to look into that. Yeah, I remember we had a loquat in a garden once that, that we were surrounded by loquats. So you, so, you know, just every time a loquat dropped, a, a little tree would yes. pop up, which I suppose is really quite nice. Indeed, guavas do the same, avas yes. and figs do the same, so yes. Yes, and, and they're all sort of fruit-bearing, which is a good thing. Which is a good thing. Just going back to where we started, Trees for Africa Arbor Challenge, at the end of the month, will we have some? Will there be some sort of tally? Yes, absolutely. At the end of Arbor Month, we will announce how many trees South Africans and Africans across the borders have planted, uh, obviously the ones that have registered with us. The good thing is that the Department of um, Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries are joining us, and they're going to be promoting this. Um, thank you very much for the opportunity to do this. I think Media 24 and Prime Media are also going to help us get the word out. But we really encourage people to go onto our site, trees.co.za, have a look at the Trees for Africa Arbor Challenge, um, tell their friends to get involved as well. And we're not asking everybody to plant trees through us. As I said, you could simply go and plant a tree in your backyard. Or um, if you are one of the lucky ones who live in a leafy suburb and uh, there's no shortage of places to plant, as I said, we've got three million applications and we can arrange um, the tree planting for you. Well, there you go. Let me encourage you further if you'd like to plant a tree. That was Jeunesse Park of Food and Trees for Africa. Check their site. It's uh, trees.co.za, trees.co.za. Well, that's it for the Enviro Show. In fact, it's a little bit over it for the Enviro Show. Thanks very much to Derek Fordyce and I'm Nancy Richardson. Do join me for sun on Sunday for SFM Literature if you are mind to. But